0: Gods and David um, is known for that. Tonight, we're going to be talking about a topic that affects all of us because we all live in a world full of conflict. And now, you don't have to look far to see conflict in our world. If you've been paying attention in the news, there's a lot of conflict right now in the Middle East and in Israel, uh, specifically along the Gaza Strip and throughout the cities of of Israel. If you've been paying attention at all here in local politics, there's a lot of conflict going on, especially with the first few um, issues on the ballot this coming November. You don't have to look far to see conflict in our world, both on the national level, on an international level, and even in our own community. But there are conflicts that affect us on an everyday basis, a lot of times those kinds of conflicts are uh, afar from us, or we deal with them, you know, when it's time to vote. But a lot of times, the conflicts that really deal with us on a week-to-week basis, where we live, work, and play, uh, are a little bit more. Um, uh, we see these things a little bit more often. Uh, for example, um, are golden Oreos really Oreos, right? Uh, we just talked about this one with candy corn. Yes, candy corn, no candy corn, right? I was trying to think of a few more of ones that we, where we, we face these on a more daily basis. One where, I'm, where I come from, uh, we don't call uh, the carbonated beverage that you drink pop, but there's, the, the, there's that argument, right? Pop Is it pop? Is it soda? Is it Coke? What do you call it, right? There's the... Um, uh, the, the uh, this one, this one I get, I had to deal with this one this last week. Does pineapple really belong on pizza, right? Some of, some of these conflicts, uh, we may not, we might not ever get an answer, uh, to some of these, these kinds of conflicts. If you live in Ohio, can you really be a Michigan fan, right? The, the, and the conflict continues, right? The conflict can right? Uh, many times the conflict. all kidding aside. We do live in a world that's full of conflict, Right? Uh, many times the conflict can be in our own families, it can be in our neighborhoods, it can be at, in the city square, uh, in our own state, uh, in a national level, in an international level. One, one writer said this conflict is humanity's primal instinct. And James chapter 4 verse 1 kind of alludes to that. Where does wars and fightings come uh, among you? It's because of our own lusts. Uh, It is kind of part of that old man, that old nature that we struggle with conflict in our world and probably won't uh, cease conflict until uh, we uh, arrive to our heavenly home because of the lusts that we have inside of us. But one of the things that we're going to hopefully be able to pull out from our scripture today is how to deal with conflict. Because as believers, we need to know how to learn to deal with conflict as it arises in a way that honors God and demonstrates that we have a heart uh, after his. So if you're you're going to be in your scripture tonight, we're going to be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 25. And uh, we've got a lot to cover tonight. It's a very lengthy chapter. We won't read every single verse, but kind of help pull out some of these highlights. Let's pray together uh, before we begin to dive into the scripture this uh, this evening. Father in heaven, we're thankful so, uh, so thankful for the word of God that illuminates our hearts and our minds, Lord, that uh, you have given us this instruction booklet so that we might be able to be conformed to your image, that we might be able to know who you are, that we might be able to understand the grace that you've given to us and the eternal life that is promised to all who believe. And Father, I pray that if there is someone here tonight who does not know Christ as their Savior, Lord, that tonight through the preaching of the word of God, you would use the spirit of God to convict their heart and to help them understand that there is a greater conflict Beyond just the conflict that we have in our everyday life, Lord, that's the conflict between man and God, sin and righteousness. But Lord, you have already bridged the gap so that we might have peace with you. Father, I pray for those in here today who have already called upon Christ to save you, uh, save them. But Lord, that they would help to have a heart like 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 yours in dealing with conflict, that we might be able to uh, use this scripture, Lord, you might be able to use it and the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to kind of summarize the first first, uh, first dozen verses or so as we lead up to the context of what we're going to be talking about. So, just to keep just kind of keeping up with David's life we've been walking through Samuel and his account of David's life from his early beginnings as a shepherd boy to his anointing to his display of courage and trust in the Lord on the battlefield with With the Philistine, Goliath, we've seen uh, him go through some valleys uh, and losing his friends, losing his family, losing uh, many different things, but finding ultimate satisfaction in God. We've been able to see him interact with Saul in the cave and sparing Saul's life, him honoring God through that portion. But now we find in 1 Samuel chapter 25, there's sort of a ceasefire between him and uh, King Saul. And so David finds himself out in an area called Hebron, out near Carmel, Uh, not the mountain, but a different city. And here he is with, he's kind of gathered together a band of 600 Rough Riders, if you will. These guys are men of war. Uh, They are, are, are trained militarily and they are allegiant to David. And here he finds himself working on the countryside back into a familiar territory where he is guarding sheep. He's guarding a rich man's sheep. And that rich man, the Bible says, is, his name is Nabal. Now, Nabal is, is kind of given to us in verse 3 of chapter 25. Um, uh, in verse 1, Samuel died, the prophet Samuel, uh, and all of Israel mourned him. And then now we find David out in the countryside in familiar territory. Verse 3, we are familiarized with a man named Nabal and his wife Abigail. This man, the Bible says, is a rich man. He has many possessions, and a lot of those possessions, of course, culturally is sheep uh, and goats and other livestock. And so we find that here... There, David is in the wilderness in verse four, and he is hearing good news. Good news for him. He's hearing that Nabal is come. It's come time to shear the sheep. Now to help, help kind of clue you into what's going on here culturally, sheep shearing time is a celebration. is a celebratory time in the Middle East because it means payday. When the sheep are shorn, it is time to get paid to make lots of money. So it's a celebratory time. And it was very common back in this time for those who had much riches and much sheep when it came shearing time, that they were going to kind of pay off some of their debts and they were going to pay the people that they owed in this regard it was very common for those who had a lot of money and a lot of sheep and a lot of country acres to protect from invaders and thieves that many times these people would hire Uh, mercenaries. They would hire uh, uh, military people to protect their investments before it came time to shear. And that's where we find David and his 600 Rough Riders. They are protecting Nabal's property, his sheep, from invaders, from thieves, and from uh, anyone who would come in and try to make a profit off of this livestock. And so it's sheep shearing time, and that means that it's payday For David and for his 600 men. So it's a celebratory time. When David hears that it's time to shear the sheep, he sends in an envoy to Nabal and he sends a couple men. He doesn't want to frighten Nabal, but they go in and they kind of go expectantly. They go in because it's time for them to receive the payment for all the work that they have done. And in verses 5 through 12, David sends out this envoy, and these men are unfortunately ridiculed and dishonored. Nabal goes, I don't know who David is. I don't know who these people are. It seems to me that right now a lot of people are defying their king. That was kind of a, a slam towards David. And so, because I don't know him and I don't know you people, get lost. And so there is a great amount of dishonor and the people who were working for David that were sent by David walk away empty-handed. And that's where we pick up in our text today in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 13. We're dealing with conflict tonight and we're going to look at four different actions that we can apply to our lives from this text today that we might be able to learn to deal with conflict as it arises in a way that honors God. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that we were going to learn today is that when conflict arises, we need to slow down. When conflict arises, slow down. And we learn this by watching what David doesn't do in verse 13. So if you have your copy of your scriptures, let's look in here. First Samuel chapter 25, beginning in verse 13, it says, David said unto his men, gird you on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And there went up after David about 400 men and 200 abode with the stuff. Now, here's what's going on. David has been dishonored publicly. He has, he has, uh, he's got 600 men at his disposal. When the men come back with the news that Nabal has not only dishonored you publicly, but he's also decided to not pay off debts with you, David is infuriated. In verse 13, he says, all right, I want all of you to put your sword on. Now, this wasn't some kind of intimidation gesture. David decided at some point that the way to respond to this dishonor, this dishonoring message and this uh, conflict is to ride into battle. The Bible says here that he takes 400 men. That's a lot of people. And his plan was to take these 400 men, we find out later in scripture, he was planning on killing Nabal and every man in that community. Shepherds, People he knew included. That's how um, frustrated and how uh, upset David was. No doubt David believed that he was owed something and he was going to collect what was due to him no matter what. David's response and his display of anger displays uh, the, the danger of a gut reaction in the times of conflict. One counselor and best-selling author uh, wrote this. He said, "'Severe anger is a form of insanity.'" You are insane whenever you're not in control of your behavior. Therefore, when you are angry and out of control, you are temporarily insane. I don't know how much I agree with this in entirety, but there is a clue here because that's not necessarily what we've seen David's track record so far. David doesn't normally say, I'm so mad I'm going to just murder an entire town. That's not the David that we've learned so far. But at some point here... When the conflict was arisen, David decided to, do, uh, to, 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 to make a choice not to slow down, but to do Wrong. If you spend any amount of time on the internet, you've probably come across this meme where there's a conversation going on in a boardroom and there's two good answers and then one smug guy gives an answer, the boss gets mad and throws that one guy out the window. Anybody seen this meme before? Maybe some of you who have parents or some of you who are parents of teenagers, maybe you felt like this one time when you got an answer from your kid, right? But we all deal with conflict sometimes poorly, I remember one time when I was in college, I was teaching a uh, Awana group on a Wednesday night. We were, I was the uh, director of the Truth and Training Club, which is third, fourth, and fifth graders. And we had one young man in our class. He was such a joy to have in class. You ever have one of those? He was one of those kinds of people that you, you just were really frustrated all the time, right? Because every time he came into class, he was disrespectful, he was disrespectful to teachers, he was disrespectful to other people, he was always arguing, he was making fun of people, he was just a joy to have in class. And I remember one time we were having a, uh, a, an illustration time, we were illustrating uh, about the Bible and I was using an egg, and we had an egg broken up and an egg yolk, and we were finished with the illustration, and he decided, you know, it would be a really good time to stand up, to come put his hand in the egg, and then try to wipe it all over the back of my shirt. And I remember at this point, I had, you know, I was not dealing with this temptation very well at this point. And I remember when he came around my back, I spun around to grab him and I elbowed him in the back of the head. Now, not on purpose. After I went, after I apologized to the mom, I was like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. At one point I went home and I was just like, you know what, man, if I would have spun around a little bit harder, maybe I would have you know, knocked him out. But Sometimes we don't deal with conflict the right way. We we get heated, uh, we get frustrated. In fact, uh, we don't do what Paul says in First Corinthians chapter nine twenty-seven. We don't keep our bodies under subjection, because oftentimes that kind of response, when we deal with conflict, when conflict arises, the idea of slowing down is actually not only countercultural, but it's also counter-biological, because a lot of times when we enter into a time of frustration, a time of anger, our body actually has a natural response. We enter into a fight-or-flight situation when we become very angry, and the... Uh, Biologists bio, uh, a biologist have told us that actually what happens is our brain re- releases a hormone called adrenaline, and when adrenaline hits the bloodstream, it cr- increases your blood pressure, it makes your heart beat faster, it squeezes the arteries, there's all kinds of things that happen when adrenaline hits the bloodstream. And so what happens is that because we're still living in these sin-cursed bodies, we still have bodies that betray the way that we should respond in times of conflict. And so when we get angry, we actually have a biological response that we not only have to deal with the spiritual side of it, but the biological side as well. <clears throat> now, as we're dealing with this, I don't know that we'll gain victory Uh, over that portion until we reach heaven and we get some glorified bodies that no longer have uh, the wrong responses to things. Um, But what I think we should do while we're here, and we're still dealing with that, is heed the words of the wisest man in the world, Solomon, from Proverbs chapter 29. He says, an angry man stirreth up strife, and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. When conflict arises, what we must learn to do is rather let, instead of letting the fires burn and us rushing into what's going on, that conflict, we need to learn to slow down. Slow down. Not only that, when conflict arises, if you're taking notes, number two, we need to learn to listen up. When conflict arises, we must learn to listen up. Let's read on in verse 14. It says, But one young man told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master, and he railed on them. That's talking about Nabal railing on David's envoy. But the men were very good unto us, and we were not hurt. Neither missed we anything, as long as we were conversant with them when we were in the fields. And they were a wall unto us, both day and day. And night, uh, night and day and all the while while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what thou wilt do. For evil is determined against our master and against all his household. For such is a son of Belial that a man cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste, took 200 loaves and two bottles of wine and five sheep ready dressed and five measures of parched corn and a hundred clusters of grapes and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on asses. And she said to her servants, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she told not her husband. Sociologists have identified really three main. Um, building blocks, if you will, when it comes to how culture works in our society. There are three main components in which culture is built. Uh, they're kind of like, they've been referred to as almost like the, the basic colors of the painting palette, where you can take uh, those three basic colors and you can paint all kinds of different shades of colors. Well, the three basic components of culture is shame, guilt, and fear. And how cultures react and utilize those things change very, very drastically depending on where you live. Now, we grew up, if you're like me, you grew up in the West. We grew up in what's called a, we, a sociologist would call a guilt based society. So our society, a lot of the West, North America, Europe, uh, our laws, the way that we interact with each other, a lot of time is built on guilt or no guilt. That's how our laws are built the way they are. That's the reasons why we interact with each other a lot the way that we do. But as you begin to travel across the world, what you find in the East, specifically the Middle East and Asia and many parts of Asia Minor today, these are still shame-based cultures, which means that... Guilt is, a, is it's part of what, how they deal with each other, but shame is really more the driving force between how relationships are handled. If you're in a fear-based culture, many of those have been described as tribal cultures, like in those of Latin America or Africa or even places like New Guinea, uh, that's how their culture is based. And we see that a lot through uh, how they interact with um, uh, their gods and, and the witch doctors, the voodoo, they tried to build fear and the tribes tried to have these fear competitions. This is how they, how they do culture. But when we're dealing with David here, David is in a shame-based culture. And the shame that is brought upon David by Nabal in his ungracious and demeaning words to David's envoy and David personally create this cultural imbalance that kind of tempts David to balance the scales. That's just kind of a little bit of an explanation of what may be going through on through David's, David's heart. David chooses, though, that he's, how he's going to balance the scales is that he's going to kill Nabal. His family and their workforce. That's how he decides to balance the scales. But we see here a wise lady, according to verse three. No, it it introduces us to Nabal, which means fool, by the way, and Abigail who, according to verse 3, is a woman of good understanding and of beautiful countenance. And this lady is reported to by one of her servants, one of the shepherds in verse 14, who relays this dishonorable treatment of David and his envoy to Abigail. And Abigail right away knows, I've got to intervene. I've got to do something. And so we see in the text that we just read, she prepares this huge A massive feast, this huge banquet. She says, "Get it all ready. We're going to deliver it. Right? It's it's kind of the uh, uh, the uh, ancient ancient Uber. She's going to deliver it to David. And so they put all of this food on these donkeys, and she goes out riding out with the food. Now let's look on here at verse 28, and we'll see how she responds to David she meets David and these 400 armed men coming down the mountainside and in between a city of a bunch of innocent people and a 400 murderous uh, rough riders, she meets them, she bows to the earth and in verse 28, she says to David, I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord fighteth the battles of the Lord. And evil hath not been found in thee uh, the, all thy days. Yet a man is risen to pursue thee and to seek thy soul, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with thee, Lord, thy God. And the souls of thine enemies shall he sling out as in the middle of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord hath done to my Lord according to all the good that he hath spoken concerning thee and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel that this shall be no grief unto thee nor offense of heart unto my Lord either that thou hast shed blood causeless causeless, or that my Lord hath avenged himself but when the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord, then remember thine handmaid, Abigail, in a stroke of genius, decides to meet him and his hungry men with this huge platter. She falls to the to the earth and she uh, gives this wonderfully um I don't know if she rehearsed this, but it was a wonderful speech to David, highlighting his life, highlighting what she knows about him, how he has been anointed to be the next king, highlighting his battle with, with Goliath, highlighting how God has his hand of favor over David. And she says, I don't want you to mess it all up, David. I don't want you to get to the throne. And look back and know what you have done to Nabal and this community. In her apologies for her foolish husband, Abigail wisely reminds David of the folly that would be unleashed upon him and his household if he were to go through with his plan. Look back again at verse 30 and 31. She says, It shall come to pass when the Lord shall have done to my Lord, that's David, according to all the good that he hath spoken concerning thee and have appointed thee ruler over Israel. She says, When you get to be king, David, I know what God's done. We've heard it. God's put his hand upon you and you are going to be the next king. When you get to that position, David, I don't want you to look back, verse 31, and remember that you've shed blood causeless. And that you've avenged yourself. She points out two evils that he would have been guilty of doing. Murder and a causeless murder. That's verse 31. Shed blood causeless. And vengeance. The Lord, uh, that my Lord hath avenged himself. Talking of David. These two things. Murder and vengeance. This murder here or what the Bible would refer to as blood guilt. Was something that's kind of all throughout the new, Te- the Old Testament it pervades all the sources: legal, narrative, cultic. It's the very, it's the we're very first introduced to this idea of blood guilt in Genesis chapter four, when Bi- the Bible says that uh, Abel's blood calls out from the ground. This kind of blood guilt, uh, taking a life without cause, um, is something that throughout the Old Testament uh, was punishable many times, multi-generationally. God would oftentimes punish an entire generation or entire legacy of people because of this kind of sin. And um, life was so important. It was such a big deal, still is today. Life is a big deal to God. And those who are quick to shed innocent blood, I believe, will be avenged by God himself, even in our culture today. But I want to say to you that God, it's been a big deal from the very beginning. Life has been a very big deal to God from the very beginning. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, there are specific laws related to the shedding of innocent blood. God provides um, some interesting thought in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's very clear that God decided that if you were going to shed innocent blood, you would be... A guilty of capital punishment. So much so that if you actually killed somebody accidentally, you would still be uh, liable for capital punishment. But in order to allow for um, grace in the Old Testament, God provided six cities, what we call, what we're called city of, cities of refuge, where you could escape to if you accidentally killed somebody. Now, if you didn't get to that city in time and someone killed you, to uh pay you back basically to 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 balance the scales that was okay that was capital punishment but if you were able to escape to one of these cities of refuge the bible says that you were allowed to stay there you couldn't leave the city and you had to wait until the high priest died and then you would be absolved of that blood guilt that was just god demonstrating that he took life seriously now, there was also a thing in Deuteronomy chapter 25 known as the unknown blood guilt clause. And so what would happen is that the Bible says that if somebody was found dead and nobody knew what happened, there still needed to be re- reparation. And so what would happen is that God says you would call out the um, Levitical priests of, those, of the nearest towns and they would literally measure how far their town was from the dead body. And whoever's town was closest, that town had to provide a heifer, a cow, That had never been used and had never been used to plow. It was a brand new cow and you would have to take the cow out to that that spot, sacrifice the cow. They'd have to ritually wash their hands and beg God to forgive them and not hold that blood guilt against them. That's how serious God was when it came to this blood guilt, this murder in the Old Testament. And this is what David was going to be found guilty of if Abigail had not stopped, stepped in, and spoken to him; if she had not listened to her 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 her, uh, um, her servant, and brought that uh, reminder to David. Personal vengeance. You might think, well, that's kind of a weird one. God had a really big uh, uh, emphasis, a whole entire chapter about blood guilt. That makes sense. But vengeance, she brings up, she says, you'd be guilty of two things, David killing without a, a cause, blood causelessly, and the Lord hath avenged himself. What is, what is that all about? Well, this one's related to blood guilt in a way because a lot of times blood guilt was uh, established because of someone's personal vengeance. Somebody got mad and then somebody killed somebody. That was kind of how they were. It kind of worked hand in hand. And oftentimes the vehicle for blood guilt was one person's choice to circumvent the will and the plan of God and retaliate to a point of killing. So David would have not only been impious by doing this, but also would be close to blasphemous at this time, believing that he was above God's will in taking the life of somebody and personally seeking vengeance. A quick wick birthed by wise choices of listening up by Abigail ends up saving David from a great fall." Proverbs 11:14 says, "Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety." My wife and I were blessed uh, to be able to go away for a few days this last week uh, into Amish country, and uh, for about a day and a half, we sat through uh, sessions. Uh, listening to a biblical counselor talk about the importance of counsel and biblical counseling for teenagers and for children. And um, the importance of how the word of God is used to to help change uh, someone's heart, because that is where real change happens. Because a lot of times when we deal with counsel... Um, A lot of times, counselors try to change just the surface level. They try to change the behavior of somebody. Stop doing bad things, start doing good things, and they never really get down to someone's desires and their beliefs, and they a lot of times don't use the word of God to change those to produce (laughs) the good fruit. He used an illustration of how when he was uh, teaching, he'd have somebody bring in a tree and he'd set the tree on the stage and he'd say, I'm gonna take this banana, I'm gonna tape this banana to the tree and he'd leave it there for a few days and what would happen? The banana would begin to rot because that fruit was not part of that tree and that's a lot of times when we counsel, we don't use the word of God, that's what happens. We try to change someone's behavior, the fruit without changing the root. He also reminded us the importance of self-counsel, using the word of God to counsel yourself. Now, interesting enough, one of the most um, uh, clear representations we see in the Old Testament of someone counseling themselves with truth from the word of God is David. Predominantly, Psalm chapter 42, verse five, David says, "'Why art thou cast down, O my soul?' Why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Counsel is important, especially when there's conflict. And if we're going to deal with conflict a way that honors God, we must, when conflict arise, listen up. We must seek godly counsel and seek counsel from God's word on how to deal with it. Let's keep going. When conflict arises, number three, we must learn to peer in. We must learn to look inside and see what God is doing in our hearts for, during this conflict. Verse, 20, uh, verse 32, let's continue with the narrative. Verse 32, David says to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel which sent thee this day to me and blessed be thy, be thy advice and blessed be thou which has kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with mine own hand. After that influential discussion, after the counsel that's heated from Abigail, from her, her own uh, uh, steward, now uh, Abigail's counsel is being heeded by David. And David takes a moment to compose himself, to slow down, to listen up, and now he begins to peer in. He knows that this woman was used by God and allowed by God to bring him much needed counsel. He uses the word blessed three times here in these two verses. That Hebrew word blessed means to kneel before. He says, blessed be the God of Israel. As David peers in, he begins to understand that David, uh, David understands that the sovereignty of God in this situation, that God is the one who's allowed this to happen, that God has allowed this woman to stop him from this foolishness and give him a chance to cool down, listen up, and peer in. God, he also says, "'Blessed be thy advice.'" David understands the impact of wise counsel in his own life. And he says, blessed be thou. David understands that even this agent of reproof is something that God has delivered to him to help save him from foolishness and from catastrophe in his life. These two verses here show the inward change of heart that David has Which manifests in his stay of illegitimate execution. From this point on, David does not continue, and he does not continue uh, with his uh, desire to kill anybody. But I wanna point out here this incredible 180 that happens in David's heart after he decides to stop, to listen up, and to peer in. You see, it's part of God's plan. For holiness and righteousness in the church. That reproof be part of the Christian experience. That reproof be part of the church experience. In fact, Paul says to his son in the ministry, Timothy, as a role of, as a pastor, I want you to reproof, to rebuke. It's part of Scripture's profitability. In, in Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, right? All scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine and for reproof. What is reproof? Well, reproof is the biblical practice of gentle correction and redirection towards God's intended plan for our life. It's part of God's plan to keep his church holy and righteous. And a believer, as a believer, we need to be willing to receive reproof the way that David received it here From Abigail. But oftentimes, that's not the case that we see. Oftentimes, if we are not careful, we allow our hearts to become become bitter, to become pompous, to become prideful. And when someone comes to us with a word of reproof, we decide, you know what? It's just a lot easier to just go down to the next church and to run away from that. But I'm telling you, reproof is a biblical practice that needs to happen in our church. It's not a way of judgment, being judgmental towards somebody else. It is a gentle correction towards God's intended, God's intended path for our lives. And when we are unwilling to listen to reproof, and we would rather choose to play victim, or we'd rather choose to escape to another church in town, we are destroying what God wants to do in our own life and in this church. There are consequences when we choose not to listen in the early, I heard a story recently in the early 1920s there was a guy named alman schroger i don 't know if you 've ever heard of this guy before. He was an undertaker in the in Indiana and uh, he was also an inventor in the early 1920 s there was a uh, what was called switchboard operators. And so for some of you younger kids, when you used to make a phone call, you used to pick up a receiver. This is before my time. I had to do some study. You picked up the receiver and uh, somebody, would say, somebody would ask you a question. Okay, And what you'd do is you'd give them the number and then they would, liter- they would physically take a cable out of a wall and put it into another place in the wall. And that would connect the phone lines. That's how phone calls used to be made before cell phones and cell phone towers. So The lady that was the switchboard operator in Alman's town was the wife of the only other undertaker in town. And so when somebody would call and ask for Alman in his undertaker practice, this lady would take the phone and connect it to her husband's practice, and he would swipe the client. And so obviously, um, uh, that necessity birthed an invention. And what he invented was called the automated switchboard. What he decided is he decided to in, uh, include some circuits and a rotary dial that you could use yourself, and this was also, again, before me, but there was a type of phone where you would spin the numbers, and they would automatically move a computerized, uh, well, not computerized, but a digitized board, and you would be able to connect the phone call yourself. And this guy came up with that, uh, that, that uh, invention, and it began to sweep the nation, right? In the 30s and 40s, automatic switchboard operators, uh, or switchboard operators, became uh, non necessary. They would install these automated switchboards. And what happened was that close to 178,000 people that were work- women who were working in the United States lost their jobs because they were all put out of business by this piece of technology. Because one lady, decided she wouldn't listen to where somebody wanted their phone call directed. This guy came up with this invention and thousands of women who were emerging out of the home at this time in the early 20s, 30s, and 40s, finding a new place, a new path in the workforce. It derailed hundreds of thousands of young women's careers and, and honestly, um, it's hard to say the impact that that had on uh, uh, for women in America. But I say all that to say that can translate into the church. When one person decides they're not going to listen to reproof, when they would rather harden their heart, when they would rather say, you know what, it's a lot easier to just not deal with this. I'll just go down the street to another church. There can be, unintended consequences for the local church. Reproof is part of the Christian experience. As one Scottish commenter put it, it's a mark of sincere and genuine godliness to not be less thankful for being kept from sinning than from being rescued from suffering. A mark of maturity I believe in Christ is the ability to peer in in the face of conflict, examining ourselves and our responses rather than the problem at hand. Many times that happens when godly reproof is part of the local church. Number four, we're running out of time. When conflict arises, we must learn to look out. Now, I don't mean look out for pots and pans flying across the the house or chairs. That's not what I mean by looking out. I mean, look at what God is doing. As one pastor put it, don't look at what's happening around you. Look what's happening in you. David and Abigail's conversation between this time and the twist that we're gonna look at in here in just a minute, Nabal throws a party. He demonstrates just how foolish he is. He throws this huge party. The Bible says that he gets drunk. The next day he wakes up and Abigail says to him, Nabal, I wanna let you know about something that happened yesterday. David and those 600 men that have been protecting your investment, they came here to kill you, but I stopped them. And the Bible says in verse 37 that when Nabal heard those words, the Bible says that his heart died within him and he became as stone. Verse 38 says, 10 days later, the Lord smote Nabal. David did not take vengeance, but God did. And here's the twist, verse 39. 39 says, when David heard that Nabal was dead... He said, Blessed be the Lord that hath pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and hath kept his servant from evil. For the Lord hath returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head, and David sent and communed with Abigail to take her to him to wife. David sends a proposal to Abigail. Abigail accepts, and the Bible says that she comes with her entourage and they're married. Later on in scripture, we find out in 2 Samuel, they have a child, one child together. And actually in scripture, two different places, he's named two different things. And I think I, want, I just wanted to point it out. In 2 Samuel chapter three, their child is named uh, Kilab, which means the restraint of the father. After David listened up, he slowed down, he peered in, he looked out, he decided to make the right decision. His hand was stayed, he restrained from killing the ball, and he was innocent of blood guilt. The second name of this child, the second name that's given to this child is in 1 Chronicles chapter 3. It's the word Daniel, which means God is my judge, pointing towards God's vengeance on the ball, rather than David taking vengeance upon himself. When conflict arises, we have to learn to look out. Because when something is happening, it's not happening to us. It's happening for us. God allows conflict into our lives to sharpen us and to help us be more like him. One pastor said it this way, in the toughest times, the hardest conversations, the most painful relationship tensions is when the light of grace shines brightest and transforms us most into his son's likeness conflict is inevitable. People are not going to stop putting pineapples on their pizza. But I want to tell you that we can respond the right way. When conflict arises, we can learn to slow down, to listen up, to peer in and look out and honor God with how we respond. Would you bow your heads with me?